It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. For most of the year, Davos is a quiet town in Upper Switzerland with a thriving ski trade. But for a week every January, the global political and business elites descend, a fleet of glossy chauffeur-driven cars and helicopters on standby, all here for the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. This year's theme is Globalisation 4.0, and in case you missed the other 3.0s, it's shorthand for approaching how the so-called fourth industrial revolution of robotics and automation coupled with the rise of more nationally oriented politics is challenging the very idea of globalization delivering on growth and social progress we need a new fundamental narrative there are people who win and there are people who lose it's creative destruction but people so don't like it because it's not inclusive so globalization itself it is good uh, the big elephant in the room with the us and china still the decoupling between economic growth and productivity growth and jobs and wages. And so this is really the challenge of our time. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and at this gathering of business and political grand fromage, we're asking, is this the era of globalization? Globalization as we know it only emerged at the end of the Cold War. But today it doesn't seem so strange when I speak to someone in India for help with an American-designed phone assembled in China. However, in recent years the pace of world commerce has slowed from lightning speed to snail's pace. On the cover of this week's Economist, the globe itself has morphed into a snail. To discuss why globalization has run out of steam and speed and what might follow, I'm joined by the author of our globalization cover story, Patrick Fowles, and by our editor-in-chief, Zani Mintenbedes. Welcome to both of you. Hello Anne. Hi. So let's start with the mood in Davos this year. We've seen assembled CEOs, heads of government all doing the rounds perhaps realising that something has changed in the air. Do either of you have anecdotes or encounters from the week that bring that to life? Zanny? Well, I think there are two big things that have struck me thus far this week. The first is actually the absence of people. And this has been much commented on, but this is a uh, gathering of the global hobnobs, as you put it, uh, but without the President of the United States, without the Prime Minister of Britain, without the President of France, without the President of China, where Jair Bolsonaro, the newly elected President of Brazil, uh, and often called the Trump of the tropics, is the, you know, is the star act. And so the interesting thing is many of these people have stayed away, these global leaders, because they are facing problems at home that are themselves a function of the backlash against globalization that people here are worrying about. 
Patrick, you get around among the financial grand fromage, but are they still coming? Do they come in the same mindset that you've seen before? Well, I, I was going to use an alternative measure of, of the size of people's entourage. Who has the biggest entourage? Last year, it was Donald Trump who drew Davos to a complete standstill. The largest one I've seen so far is, is Bono, uh, the singer of U2, who was surrounded, flanked by a variety of people on all sides, but not as impressive as uh, the occupant of the Oval Office. Yeah, I mean, I think the financial elite are cognizant of the populist pressures around the world and also a bit worried about the economic outlook. Let's talk to you, Patrick, a bit more about what you went into in depth in that report that you wrote for us. What key moments in the last 30 years do you think made us think, oh, globalisation's here to stay, this is the way it's going to be? Well, I think what you had is around 1990, a series of things happened. The US, which had been bashing Japan in the 1980s, tilted towards a more free trade uh, view of the world. And then you had China, Russia and India all... Uh, have huge changes in their approach to their economy, and basically all of them began to open up. And then you had a few technological changes like cheap phone calls and the the rise of the 20-foot shipping container, which slashed the costs of of, uh, moving stuff around the world. And that confluence of things meant over the subsequent 20 years, you saw an explosion in world commerce on a variety of measures from investment flows to multinational companies trading more around the world. We think of globalisation as being exactly that, what it says on the tin, but how evenly have the benefits been felt, Patrick? Well, most countries in the world are pretty integrated into the global trading system, but there is a chunk of places which are simply not. Two ways of thinking about that. Roughly a billion people around the world uh, live in countries where trade is just not very important to the economy. Another way of thinking about it is to imagine all of the bilateral trading relationships that could exist in the world. So think of, I don't know, Korea and Gabon or something like that. Roughly a quarter of the possible trading relationships that exist, nothing happens at all. There is no recorded commerce. So there is a chunk of the world which is left out of this globalised system. Uh, Zani, uh, as well as uh, being editor of The Economist, you've been an economist for a long time and you understand that there are sometimes ebbs and flows in these things. Why do you think this is a particular period of lesser integration? What makes it different from just things stopping and starting a bit over the decades? Well, you're right that we've seen various eras of globalization, and Patrick's piece lays them out very well. And we had, I think, from sort of, let's say, 1989, 1990 onwards until 2008, the period of what's often called hyper-globalization, because after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of communism, and the sort of intellectual move towards free and capital flows, we had trade in goods, trade in capital really explode globally. Then came the financial crisis, which was a big part of what happened. There's also change in the the nature of the economies we have. Our economies now increasingly move to services, and services are much less traded than goods. And at the same time, the costs of transportation have stopped falling as much as they were. So this confluence of good things um, has basically slowed. So that's one of the reasons trade has slowed as a share of global GDP. The real change in the last few years has been a much bigger collapse relative to the size of the world economy of investment flows. And that bodes really poorly for what comes ahead. And part of the reason for that is these structural changes, but a bigger reason, actually, I think, is is politics. And that's onto this 
big change in structural flows, you then put Donald Trump and you put the tariff war and you have the rising suspicion between China and the US. And actually, you know, we put this on the cover this week. We like to to lay out issues that people should understand and that are really important. And I have to say, and this is no doubt self-serving, but it is something that is being discussed here really quite a lot. And people are conscious that investment flows are not nearly as strong as they used to be, that the world is slipping into regional blocks much more, that supply chains are shrinking. Let's look at the role of America in this. Is it accurate to call the last 30 years of globalisation the American age? Or did we get kind of suckered into a self-description that wasn't right the first time around? Well, I don't know. Yes, it is the American age in the sense that the other superpower, the other intellectual framework that, you know, perhaps was there when the Soviet Union existed sort of disappeared. It became fashionable in these, you know, this world where everyone's trying to find a slogan or an acronym to talk about the the G1 world, you know. And yes, there was some truth to it. And certainly the Washington consensus, the notion that policy ideas that came from the US were centered in the US were the sort of dominant zeitgeist. And that is changing. But I think it's a mistake to think that we're now simply at the sort of end of the American era and something else is going to take its place. It's much more complicated than that. We're seeing very clearly a shift, and it's it's something we've been writing about really for the past year, a growing strategic rivalry between the US and China. That is real. That is here to stay. It's particularly manifest in technology. Even if there is, and I think there may well be, some kind of deal done between Donald Trump and President Xi in the next couple of months that ensures that we don't have a further surge in tariffs between the US and China, we're not going to go back to the world where we were. There is a great sense of strategic rivalry. There is also a sense in America that they are threatened, that American dominance is threatened. But the reality is that in some areas, particularly in finance, American dominance is still almost absolute. The dollar is the world's global currency that affords the US unbelievable ability to throw its weight around, and it is increasingly weaponizing that ability. Weaponizing the dollar, strong words. What does it mean, Patrick? Is it just code for another sort of attack on the way that Donald Trump uses the dollar and America in his worldview? Is it something more specific? It's a very specific thing, and it's not something that's that, that's that widely known. I mean, when you trade and invest globally, you you typically use the dollar as the currency, and ultimately the money sloshing around has to be routed through American banks in America. Uh, and what that means is if, if the US prohibits foreign companies from doing that, it becomes extremely difficult for them to actually do transactions around the world. And, you know, you, you think of the Chinese technology company ZTE last year, which was in effect banned from using this American sort of network for several months. You know, the share price halved, it was pushed into losses, people were talking about the company going bankrupt. So it's an enormously uh, sensitive and, and privileged position position America has. And uh, if it gets more aggressive using this, which it does seem to be doing, it really scares the hell out of foreign companies. I mean, it's as simple as that. What's the position now of Huawei, for instance? There's a company absolutely in the kind of firing line about its practices, but obviously be becoming something of a football there between China and America. Would it be in that kind of position where it would be open to to not being able to trade in the dollar? Is that what you're Yeah, so it's, it's affected in two ways. The, the the way America got the information about the executive who's been arrested was actually through the intelligence network it has 
through the dollar payment system. And then secondly, if ultimately the politicians in Washington decide to prohibit or punish uh, Huawei, one method of doing that is, again, to make it radioactive, to make it illegal for American companies to, to interact with it, at which point it's important in terms of people supplying widgets to Huawei, but also means that the financial system is unable to touch it. So, Zani, if we look to the big picture and this globalisation 4.0, a very Davos term, I think, probably unlikely to make it to the barroom chat, but it does point to a sense of concern. The question I've asked everywhere I go, I don't know if it's the same for you, is how worried are you? And how worried are you really in the grand scheme of things about slowing globalisation? I am worried. Um, I mean, I'm a congenital optimist, but I'm, it does worry me. I'm not worried about a cataclysmic financial crash, you know, in the next few months. And usually when people say in this place, are you worried? They mean, do you think there's going to be a recession around the corner? And, and you know, how terrible. And actually there, you know, I'm struck by the um, amount of optimism, particularly amongst American executives who think that the US economy is really quite strong and going to stay quite strong and are much less concerned about the cyclical concerns about recession and so forth that are often dominant here. What worries me is that we have this confluence of, of several things. Firstly, globalization as we know it is in retreat, as Patrick's piece lays out. That is not going to be good for an awful lot of people who have not yet become part of the globalized world. It's also going to make it harder to deal with a lot of problems we face in the globalized world. At the same time, you have this geopolitical rivalry between the ascendant power of the 21st century and the existing dominant hegemon, the US and China. That means that the dominant hegemon, the US, is going to, as we've discussed, be able to use things like its dominance in the dollar, which I think will make the globalization, as Patrick puts it, even more likely. And thirdly, part of the reason people are angry about globalization, particularly in the advanced economies, is that there are a lot of people who feel that they have not shared in the gains, who they've lost out. Um, you know, it's always here in Davos, it's the sort of great irony that lots of these plutocratic people, the global elite, you know, express enormous concern for those people who are left behind and then wring their hands about what can they possibly do about it. I don't know how many sessions I've talked to people about that in the last few days. But it's a real problem, and this time they see it in the people who aren't showing up. Macron, he's not showing up because of the gilet jaune. You know, Donald Trump's not showing up because he's, you know, determined to build his wall. Theresa May's not showing up, you know, because she's got to deal with Brexit. These people in all these countries are angry, and that is still not being dealt with. So, Patrick, having pinned your colours to this idea of globalization, how do you see that the breakdown of these relationships that we've been talking about, the changing geography of commerce, how do we see it really changing how power is distributed? Well, I think that the, the pattern that seems to be emerging, as Zani's mentioned, is, is a more regional one. So if you look at Europe and Asia and, and look across a variety of measures like um, their ability to control foreign investment, their ability to police the technology world, uh, even quite wonky things like antitrust policy or accounting, each is, seems to be developing more of a regional uh, gravitational pool. And I think that's probably the world we're heading towards with three big blocks. And as Zani said, that comes with a number of downsides, including a rather important one that some countries don't really appear to belong to any of those three blocks and might be left out. To learn more about this seismic shift in the geography of commerce, I spoke to Parakana. He's the founder of FutureMap, a strategic advisory firm, and his work maps the flows of political power, trade and culture around the world. He believes the future is Asian, also the title of his new book. And I asked him whether he means by that that the future isn't, as some seem to fear, Chinese. 
China is a very important part of Asia, but China represents only half its GDP, only half of the inbound investment, and only half of the outbound investment of Asia to the world. Very significantly, China represents 1.5 billion people, whereas Asia on the whole is 4.5 billion people. So there are 3 billion Asians who are not Chinese, and their story has yet to properly be told, not only in the Asian context, but in the global context. So is the focus that we see in the media, also in politics, on the breakdown of the America-China trading relationship justified, or is that obscuring a more interesting and significant shift in the power dynamic? You've put it very well. It is absolutely obscuring a much more significant set of trends. China's largest trading partners to go collectively are its Asian neighbors. In other words, China trades more within Asia than it does with the United States. In fact, China and Asia together trade much more with Europe than they do with the United States. So if you are a Chinese policymaker, America is your third most significant geography of trade. So your number three has just launched a war against you and it expects to win. It makes absolutely no sense. Without appreciating regional integration, and the regional trade and financial dynamics and the growing self-sufficiency even, and the, even the decoupling of Asia, which is one of the arguments in my book, you would completely misunderstand how this trade war is going to play out. And as trade flows are redirected, if you're right, and there is this quite fundamental shift beyond what we see in that great biff, bash, bosh argument between China and America, there's compensating for tariffs, there are new important relationships. What do they look like? Well, actually, and these trends began before the trade war. They even began before the financial crisis of 10 years ago. In fact, intra-Asian trade became larger than Asia's trade with the rest of the world as of the year 2004. And that is actually why Asia was so well insulated from the effects, from the demand shock of the financial crisis. So Asia has been Asianizing actually since the end of the Cold War. It's been happening for nearly 30 years, but it hasn't been the dominant story. China's growth follows on the heels of the Japanese economic miracle, then the inspirational role Japan had on the tiger economies, and then Japan and the tigers being the largest investors in China. And now what we're seeing is that Japan, the tigers, and China are collectively the largest investors in the next wave of Asian growth. This is, again, very important in the context of the trade war because the trade war is not just two countries. There is a winner from the trade war, and it's neither China nor America. It's Southeast Asia. It's India. It's this zone of Asia that constitutes 2.5 billion people with a younger population, higher growth rates than China, attracting more foreign investment and those are the new growth centers and how permanent do you think these shifts are it could simply be that this is one way which things are moving now partly because of global tensions more generally but that ultimately those big relationships that we've seen define international trade flows kind of come back on stream my argument is both and even if there is a rebound in Western growth, for example, there is simply going to continue to be an increase in the volumes of trade flows and investment flows between Asia and the West. After all, Asia remains the fastest growing region of the world economy. Let's look just at Europe. $500 billion more per year in trade across Eurasia than across the Pacific Ocean. That is set to continue because of the Belt and Road Initiative, because Europe is seeking free trade agreements with Japan, with ASEAN, 
ASEAN, with uh, India. So I foresee not necessarily an either-or dynamic where Asia goes its own way and the West goes its way, but rather a both-and scenario. Asia decouples a little bit. It becomes more self-sufficient. It recreates its silk roads. But that creates enormous opportunities into which Western capital markets, investors, and exporters want to be part of. So the Belt and Road Initiative, for a lot of people, a sign of a kind of soft power imperialism on the part of Beijing, seems to strike you as a more promising form of sort of liberalisation. It's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Uh, yes and no, actually. The history of globalization is the history of imperial expansion. We don't have globalization without the expansion of empires that foster, stimulate, promote in their own self-interest globalization and build the Silk Roads and the trading networks of the past. So globalization is often talked about as this disembodied global and neutral force. It's not. It's always been an imperial enterprise. But that doesn't mean that the force that structures it or that shapes it in its early phases is the one that dominates it later on. They build the roads, but everyone gets to use the roads. China is building roads, but all roads don't lead to Beijing. And that's the way the future is going to play out. Patrick, what do you make of Parag's assessment there? The future is Asian. It's not just Chinese. Is he right? Well, I think the mood in Asia is definitely that there's there's more integration happening within the region, more deals, uh, more companies straddling different countries, especially in Southeast Asia. And, I, you know, I think that's an absolutely uh, genuine trend. And, and actually, when you're in Asia, you know, you you feel that quite powerfully, the sense that the, the world centre has, has shifted. The tension within it is really that politically within Asia, uh, not all countries are very comfortable with China. So there's a sort of inherent political instability there. And then and some elements of Asia are not really regional at all. So Asia's financial markets, for example, are still really dominated by global money, global capital flows. Uh, so elements of the jigsaw puzzle aren't really regional at all. So it's a, a kind of partial picture, but I think Parag's general direction is certainly correct. Who do you both think will be the main beneficiaries of all this? Let's just put aside for one short moment the how worried are you default mode of uh, this meeting here at Davos. Someone always kind of wins somewhere when there are losers. What do you reckon, Zanny? So I think in the short term amongst the big powers, uh, if you are big and powerful already, you're going to gain. So if you've got a big market uh, and you can throw your weight around, you're going to be relatively better off than smaller fry. And then I would put the US into that as a prime position. There. I mean, if you look at what's happened in the Donald Trump era, make America great again in a kind of short term way, these things, if you have a, you know, even in a zero sum nature, America has gained a bigger chunk. But in the longer term, you know, I don't want to... Um, give the impression that I think there are, you know, there's no hope for those people in the rest of the world who are not yet part of the globalized world. One of the most upbeat uh, sessions I've been to at any Davos for a long time is one I actually chaired this morning with Jack Ma from Alibaba and um, President Paul Kagame of Rwanda. And they were talking about this um, new idea that Jack Ma is pushing of an electronic world trading platform. And with that, you know, there are lots of, if you start thinking about it, lots of difficulties with it. But the sheer scale of ambition of this is sort of breathtaking that they, he wants to create a trading platform, which is essentially a sort of new set of global trade rules where small and medium sized businesses up to a million dollars can export and import free of any tariffs, done very easily on a digital platform, the Alibaba platform. And the idea is to bring lots of small businesses into the global trading system. So in Rwanda's case, where they've gone first, it's basically coffee growers 
are now selling to China and they're selling to Chinese consumers. Now, you know, the cynical journalistic side of me can think of all kinds of problems with this, but just in terms of sheer scale, chutzpah, desire to change the world, it was kind of a refreshing sense that actually there's an enormous amount of possibility out there and it's in the emerging world. That's where the future consumers are. Patrick, I would never suggest to a treasured colleague that he has a cynical journalistic side, but where are the main beneficiaries of this as far as you've seen when you were researching your piece? So one of the interesting questions is if the world is deglobalizing, maybe uh, the winners and losers are the opposite of what happened when the world was globalizing. But actually, when you start thinking about it, that's not actually true. So across the world, it may be the case that poor people in the emerging world find it harder to catch up because the the detached from the global system of commerce. But on the other hand, uh, the losers from the globalized system, which probably include some blue-collar workers in the Western world, there's not really a clear case that they're suddenly going to do better. Automation means that manufacturing is not suddenly going to return at grand scale to, to big Western economies, including the US. So you could have a weird situation where actually deglobalization doesn't really create any winners in either the rich world or the poor. You've covered Wall Street for us for a long time, particularly prior to the, the job that you're now in. You, you watched it day in, day out. What sort of dangers does this increase in regionalization bring, or challenges, I should probably say, to establish global financial systems? Well, for the American banks um, you know, and Wall Street firms, America is, is enormously you know, important to them, and it really is their core market. And um, in a sense, I think they could survive uh, with, with, without their international businesses. But there is this, this uh, big architectural problem now in the world that, that the pattern of commerce and politics seems to be becoming more uh, regional. And yet the global financial system, the, uh, the ebb and flow of markets is very global still. Um, and it creates a sort of tension where people are living in countries where commerce tends to be more with their neighbours, yet subject to stock markets, interest rates which are still set on Wall Street and where uh, America has an outsized influence. So there is a case that that inbuilt tension is a source of instability. And Zani, if we want to maintain a balanced, peaceful, global system, avoiding the kind of flashpoints as far as possible that we're seeing now, say, between China and the US, do international organisations need to change? Do some of the bodies that we're seeing often on these grand platforms, places like Davos, what do they need to do differently? Well, I think the simple answer is, of course, they need to change. But I think they're actually becoming ever less relevant. Um, and I think that's one of the real challenges. We, we, there's a lot of hand-wringing about, you know, the end of the liberal world order and the challenge that Donald Trump has thrown to it and the need for institutions to modernize for the 21st century. But what we're actually seeing is that these institutions are becoming less and less relevant. You know, the WTO is essentially almost completely irrelevant to the China-US trade spat. And as, therefore, you move away from these global institutions, the question becomes, how are global rules set? Is it just might makes right? Is it a zero-sum world? And I, my worry is you go into that. So, yes, they need to change, but even if they changed, it's not clear to me that that's enough. There's a feeling here at Davos, I think, Patrick, of if things catching up with us, a lot of themes and threats, worries, seems to have crystallised this year, or is this just me getting a bit of Davos paranoia? 
No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, the trade war's been going on for two years. But actually, weirdly, 2018 was actually quite a good year. The world grew fast. Trade went up. Profits went up. Unemployment went down. Um, what's actually happening now is with a delayed reaction, uh, the impact of this sort of geopolitical tension is beginning to feed into the system more, uh, which means the economic drag it creates is probably going to be more pronounced this year. Sandy, we couldn't leave this without mentioning the big B word, the Brexit word. Big hoardings, I notice, as going into one of the main hotels here. Britain is a great free trading destination. Of course, Brexit by no means a settled question. What have you been hearing here about that? I saw those uh, and I wondered whether it was someone actually having a joke at our expense when I saw those, those signs. Do you know, uh, for the first time, I feel, uh, as I imagine, I guess the Greeks must have felt in 2010 and various other countries must have felt when they were in trouble. I get a mixture of incredulity, sympathy, questioning, sort of raising of eyebrows. What the heck is going on in your country is the sort of general question that I get. And uh, absolutely, people cannot, you know, everyone is suddenly becoming an expert in the sort of fine print of, you know, the House of Commons rule book. Um, but they broadly, they cannot believe that a country that, if anything, has had a reputation for punching above its weight in global affairs, but being run by reasonably sensible and competent people, can be in such a mess. Uh, an American, a big American businessman I spoke to said to me that this was an exercise in brand destruction, and that whatever happened, Britain would emerge diminished. And that really brought it home to me. I think he's right that whatever happens, whatever the outcome is, whether we end up staying in, whether we end up with a soft Brexit, certainly if we end up with a hard Brexit, Britain is diminished. And that was um, a pretty sobering realisation to come to. Sandy Mittenbedos and Patrick Fowles, thank you both very much. Getting back to it now? Getting back to what? A stiff drink. That'd be nice. Patrick. Thanks for having us, Anne. Thanks for both coming in. And we'd love to hear what you think. Snowballs at Davos, globalisation, and what next for globalisation? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in Davos, with the rest of our team, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.